In episode 201 of the Crash Course video series, John Green, an armchair historian with a knack for unraveling historical complexities, delves into a thought-provoking topic, the re-examination of the very concept of civilization. Green challenges prevailing notions surrounding barbarians and aims to reshape our perspectives. Instead of portraying them as merely underdeveloped, waiting for the guidance of more advanced societies, he prompts us to reconsider the lens through which we view these groups. Far too often, the term civilization carries implicit positive connotations. We associate it with communities banding together, forming the bedrock of what we consider the civilized world. These settlements not only foster a surplus of individuals, but also gives rise to job specialization, paving the way for the myriad advancements that enrich our lives today. On the flip side, Crash Course attempts to challenge the ingrained stereotypes of the barbarians. Green characterizes them as adherence to ancient nomadic societies, maintaining a lifestyle often dismissed as primitive. Language, as Green cleverly points out, reveals our bias. The very terms associated with barbarians, savage, beast, ignoramus, and troglodyte, highlight the deep-seated preference for being aligned with the concept of civilization. The term civilization has roots that can be traced back to both French and Latin. According to linguist Emile Beneviste, the final iteration of the word surfaced in modern language during the 16th century, aiming to define together both its direction and continuity. From its inception, civilization has aimed to establish itself in stark contrast to the barbarian world, as the French components of the term associated civilization with the intertwined principles of law and order. In an article for the Oxford Handbooks, Brent Bowden places law and order at the core of his own exploration into the concept of civilization. He cites the work of R.G. Collinwood's delineation of three facets of civilization economic, social, and legal. Economic civilization, as Collingwood articulates, is distinguished not merely by the pursuit of wealth, but by the civilized pursuit of wealth. The realm of social civilization represents the forum where human sociability finds expression through joint action, or as we might say, community. The ultimate hallmark of civilization, though, is a society governed by law, with a focus not solely on criminal law, but predominantly on civil law, the law in which claims are adjusted between its members. For Collingwood, civilization is something which happens to a community. Civilization is a process of approximation to an ideal state. This nuanced understanding invites us to view the concept not merely as a static condition, but as an ongoing journey towards an idealized societal state. This definition of civilization, a group that pursues riches, maintains community, and is governed by laws, doesn't forcibly remove groups that we have long referred to as barbarians. Despite the shared characteristics, the hill people remain a distant and dangerous group on peripheries of civilization. The most feared of such groups were the Mongols from the steppes of East Asia. Their most famous tribe member, 
Genghis Khan is also the subject of our next series. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon Mongolia's most notorious conqueror, Genghis Khan. Episode number one, The Birth of a Tyrant. The origins of the Mongol tribe structure can be traced back to their origin myth. According to their legends, a male blue-gray wolf mated with a fallow deer, resulting in the improbable birth of a human male child. Subsequent children followed, marking the beginning of the world of man on the steppe. One notable aspect of Mongol culture stemming from this origin story is the clear delineation between the masculine wolf, a hunter, and its feminine partner, the deer who serve as prey. The narrative, as recounted in the Mongolian secret history, reveals that generations of families lived harmoniously until Dobon and his wife Alhan. Their decades-long marriage resulted in two sons. But upon the husband's death, Alhan was reportedly surprised by a man who was described as being as yellow as the sun. Even more mysteriously, this man entered her tent illuminated by moonbeams. Once inside, he rubbed her belly with his hands before vanishing into thin air. The result was an immaculate conception that brought forth three more sons. Upon reaching adulthood, the five sons each formed their own clan and embarked on separate paths, establishing the tribal system of the steppe people. The vast steppe endows its nomadic inhabitants with formidable powers that have historically instilled fear in empires upon the arrival of the steppe people. Spanning a geographical region where one can experience all four seasons within a single day, this environment ensures its residents are adept at navigating diverse climates and flexible in adapting to changing weather conditions. Mongolia, characterized by low humidity, rarely witnesses clouds, granting the nation 500 more hours of summer sunshine compared to my home state of Indiana. The steppe's climate shapes individuals to conform to it, rather than the reverse. This forms one of the initial distinctions between the so-called barbarian tribes and their civilized counterparts as civilizations tend to mold the surrounding world to meet their needs, exemplified by major population centers in the arid southwest of the U.S., as well as New Orleans, which is strategically situated below sea level. The civilized, when presented with valuable resources, find ingenious ways to access them. The steppe, however, poses challenges for agriculturalists, leading to the complete absence of major cities. The surplus populations and civilizations are often directly tied to agriculture, a dependency not found on the steppe. Scarce moisture quickly evaporates due to solar radiation, 
hindering the abundant growth of grass. Consequently, nomadic tribes in the region relying on livestock such as goats, sheep, yaks, camels, and oxen must cover vast distances to feed their animals. Pigs, requiring closer proximity, are therefore ruled out. The constant extensive journeys are only made possible by the most prized possession of all steppe tribesmen, the horse. This connection between the nomadic lifestyle and horsemanship grants the steppe culture its superpower. From the tender age of three, children in the steppe are introduced to the equestrian way of life. Some were even tethered to saddles before reaching the age of three, so that they could be acclimated to the rhythmic sway of the horse. Incredibly, there are accounts of infant horsemen mastering the art of riding before taking their first steps. By the age of six or seven, these young riders were already skillfully shooting bows from the backs of galloping horses, honing their ability to synchronize with the horse's gallop. They learned to release arrows only when all four hooves were simultaneously off the ground, showcasing a level of precision that allowed any proficient Mongol to hit a bird in flight at full speed. Contrary to common perceptions, Mongol horses were not only swift, but also remarkably responsive to verbal commands and leg signals. This cultivated a profound bond between the rider and the horse, akin to the relationship between a man and his dog. This bond, built on trust and mutual understanding, allowed steppe warriors to maintain between 6 to 18 horses each. This strategic approach helped distribute the weight of their possessions during travel and crucially allowed them to keep their mounts fresh during times of warfare. The reliance on this symbiotic relationship with horses became a defining feature of steppe culture, shaping the prowess of Mongol warriors in both mobility and combat effectiveness. Let's go back to that idea that the steppe changes those who live within it. British historian Frank McLinn explains that while a desert habitat is conducive to gradualism, the steppe habitat lends itself to rapid and violent solutions. Nomadic pastoralism on the steppe tends to isolate people and breed mutual incomprehension, so that raiding becomes an intrinsic part of life. Since raiding is a diversion from the primary purpose of pastoralism, there is an innate tendency for pastoralists to make their raids so savage and ferocious that sedentary agriculturalists, having once tasted the lash, will ever afterwards give in without a fight. One might simplify by saying that pastoral life engenders a kind of bully's charter. Before Genghis Khan's unification of the Mongol nation, the Naiman of the southern slopes held the distinction of being the most powerful individual tribe. Following them were the Kurit to their east, then the Tatars, a conglomerate of six different clans. The Tatars were frequently manipulated by the Jin Chinese dynasty, which aimed to sow division among the northern adversaries. 
In practical terms, this manipulation often involved using the Tatars to perpetuate a constant state of civil war on the steppe. In return for their involvement, the Jin Chinese rewarded them with access to Chinese goods. A crucial commodity on the steppe, since the nomadic Mongols did not produce their own industrialized goods or textiles. Temujin, the man later known as Genghis Khan, belonged to the Kamag clan, a small yet fiercely proud tribe. His father, Yasugi, was a man known for starting more fights than he finished. A notorious womanizer, Yasugi even left in the middle of a war with the larger Karit clan to initiate a conflict with the even more powerful Merkit clan. This turbulent backdrop set the stage for the rise of Genghis Khan and the transformative events that would reshape the course of Mongol history. While it is unwise to assess the cultures of the past using today's moral standards, a particular Mongol custom stands out as abhorrent. Specifically, the fact that it was commonly accepted to acquire a wife by kidnapping her. This practice was prevalent and normalized throughout the tribes of the steppe. Once abducted, the woman would be expected to assimilate into their kidnapper's tribe often displaying some form of Stockholm Syndrome. Around 1159, Yasugi abducted Holin, a 15-year-old girl who had been engaged to the leader of the Merkit. This singular act sparked a blood feud between the two tribes that would persist for the next 50 years. There are moments when the stark contrast between the civilized world and anarchy becomes evident. Even amid instances of crude and primitive behavior, civility can persist. In the case of Holin, her betrothed from the Merkit clan chose not to put up a futile fight on her behalf. Outnumbered five to one, she persuaded her fiancé by saying, If you but live... There will be maidens for you on every front and in every cart. You can find another woman to be your bride, and you can call her Holin in place of me. She then removed her shirt, handed it to her fiancé as a memento, and calmly awaited her fate with the man who would become her new life partner. This reprehensible act becomes even more condemnable when considering that Yasugi, the perpetrator of the abduction, already had a wife, as well as a harem of women beneath his command. Holin was merely another prize he coveted from a distance, stripping away any romantic notions of love at first sight. Despite this inauspicious start, Holin bore her new husband five children, four sons and a daughter. Temujin, the couple's firstborn, whose name means blacksmith, had an unusual beginning to his story, as he was born clutching a blood clot, which was considered a sign of good fortune from Alhan the Fair, marking him as destined to become a great conqueror or leader. These signs turned out to be correct. Two individuals play a critical role in understanding Genghis Khan's endeavor to unite the tribes. The first is Jamuka, 
his childhood best friend from the Jadaran clan. The Kamag, which represents the slang name for Mongol, meant black family, while Jamuka's tribe came to represent the white. The two young men had a historically close relationship, and at the age of six, Jamuka became Temujin's Anda, a position akin to being a blood brother. However, nothing lasts forever on the steppe, and the two tribes amicably parted ways when Temujin was just nine years old. Around the same time, another key figure entered the scene. Borte, of the Honorigard clan, renowned for having the most beautiful Mongol women. Engaged to Temujin, Borte's dowry presented a challenge for Yusugi, who, although desiring the best for his son, could only afford to offer a single horse as a down payment. Promising more riches in exchange for the right to marry, Yusugi left Temujin to serve as a laborer with Borte's father. The debt was so significant that Temujin was to remain as a servant for three years, a common practice serving as a proving ground to be deemed worthy by one's father-in-law. At the time, the young Genghis Khan was unaware that this expedition would mark the final journey he would undertake with his father. For on the journey home, Yasugi fell into a trap set by the Tatars, who had feigned ignorance of the clan leader's identity and invited him and his men for a feast. In Mongol diplomacy, food played a significant role. Offering a traveler food and a spot by the fire was customary and a gesture of peace. Similarly, refusing offered food was considered a grave insult. Yusugi unknowingly consumed a generous amount of food laced with a slow-acting poison. Despite holding on for three days, he succumbed to the poison, using his dying breath to order Temujin's return home and designating him as the next head of the clan. Unfortunately, Yusugi's wish went unheeded by his people, who lamented, the deep waters have dried up, the sparkling stone is shattered. This set in motion an unpredictable sequence of decisions that would all go against the family of Yasugi. In both civilized and barbaric worlds, absenteeism during election time can yield disastrous consequences. In this particular scenario, the tribe understandably harbored fears about having an unproven boy as their leader, especially while they were actively engaged in conflicts against the Merkit and the Karit. Without Yasugi to protect and provide, his children and the women of the tribe became dependents. Holin, after being denied the chance to partake in the annual celebration of the tribe's ancestors, sensed that something was amiss. Turning to the tribal leaders, she asserted her claim through them to ascend to Yusugi's leadership position, a claim that was promptly rejected. She had become untouchable, in part because she had rebuffed the advances of Yusugi's younger brother, who had sought the traditional right to claim his older brother's wife. Upon rejection, he systematically turned chieftain after chieftain and clan after clan against Holin's family. 
This complex web of relationships and power dynamics resulted in the family's expulsion from the clan. Being without a clan was considered a form of social death among the Mongols, perceived as even worse than death itself. The family, stripped of all possessions except for a half-dozen horses, found themselves compelled to scrape by on edible plants and the meat of small rodents. The conditions were dire, to the extent that Temujin would risk the small remnants of his family's honor over a mere fish. The struggle for survival in this state of social isolation illustrates the severe consequences and challenges associated with losing one's place within the complicated Mongol social structure. Before his father passed away, Temujin's two older half-brothers had become socially positioned beneath Holin's children due to the unexplained disappearance of Yasugi's first wife. It is believed that she may have been unfaithful, leading to her fleeing, being abandoned, or perhaps executed. Her shame would have then been placed upon her children. In the absence of the tribal structure, however, the older brothers began to reassert their dominance. The incident involving the fish wasn't likely the first instance, but it would be the last time the power imbalance worked against the future Khan. Begtar, the eldest of the family, stole a fish caught by Temujin and his younger brother Kassar. The presence of a fish in the story is noteworthy, as Mongol herders typically avoided fishing, considering it beneath them and harboring strong superstitions about water associated with the feminine Earth Mother. The Mongols, often labeled as horse people, also refrained from bathing contributing to a distinctive aroma from warriors spending the entire day in the saddle. Despite being perceived as superstitious, the Mongols' rationale for avoiding open water was more scientific than first assumed, as they feared lightning striking the water while they were in it. That's right, it was just a natural fear of lightning, rather than some crazy tribal superstition that prevented them from obtaining proper hygiene. Of course, you might laugh when you discover that they believed that the lightning came from dragons who preferred to roam around during the warmer times. As for the Mongols' unique body odor, that was just part of the world of the Mongols, who would exchange sniffs in the same way that we would kiss a loved one. Upon learning of the discord among her sons, Holin gathered them together and recounted the tale of Alan the Fair, who after her husband's death bore several sons through the mystical light source. These sons were raised by Alan and one of her adopted sons, who subsequently played the dual role of father and husband. The implications of this story were immediately evident to the audience. Holin was not only aligning with her stepchildren in the matter of the fish, but she also seemed inclined to partner with Begtur in order to reinstate the customary fatherly role in the family. This proposition was vehemently rejected by Temujin, prompting him to set up an ambush. 
Waiting until Begtar was isolated and alone, Temujin stealthily approached from one side, while Kassar, the family's best archer, approached downwind. Rising together with bows raised, they confronted Begtar, who facing immediate death chose not to resist. He reportedly told his younger half-brother, I am not the lash in your eye, the impediment in your mouth. Without me, you have no companion but your own shadow. Both brothers released their arrows, squarely hitting their stationary target. They then left Begtar to bleed out and die alone. Surprisingly, they spared their other half-brother, Belgotai. It remains unclear if this decision was guided by some sort of complex step code of justice or due to the older man's submissive nature. Nevertheless, it proved to be a wise choice, as Belgutai became one of Temujin's most loyal followers, surviving well into his 90s. In Mongol culture, relationships held greater importance than clan affiliations, and killing a family member was one of the most taboo acts. Regardless of the cause or insult, Upon discovering the premeditated murder, Holin erupted in anger, hurling a barrage of insults at her two sons. She compared them to dogs biting their afterbirth, panthers rushing over a cliff edge, angry lions, pythons with eyes bigger than their stomachs, and falcons chasing their own shadows. The Taichud, a powerful clan controlling the land where the family resided for the moment, swiftly moved in to arrest Temujin. Evading capture for six days, he survived on water alone. When finally apprehended, he was marched into camp and sentenced to imprisonment in a kangu, a form of East Asian punishment designed to humiliate the victim. Picture a human-sized cone of shame a rectangular billboard with slots for the head and hands to remain trapped in place. The wooden contraption was large enough that the prisoner required assistance for basic functions, such as eating, drinking, and defecating. His imprisonment likely lasted for a few months. But there are scholars that allege that his imprisonment went on for a significantly longer period of time, perhaps as long as 10 years. The Secret History, which represents the only Mongol written account of the events of Genghis Khan's time, has a roughly 10-year gap in the story of the Great Khan. Some speculate that this experience as a prisoner accounts for that missing time, and that it was so traumatic for the Great Khan that the Mongol scholars simply decided to gloss over it in the historical record. We will never know exactly how long the imprisonment lasted, but we are aware of how it ended. One night, the Techud only left one kid to watch their captive. When that boy fell asleep, Temujin crept up on him and clubbed him over the head with a kangu. Instead of making a run for it, the resourceful Temujin used the wooden device to float in a river hidden by reeds that emerged out of the water up to his neck. A lowly slave was the one that eventually found him and pulled the freezing Temujin into his tent, 
There, he hid him under a heap of fleeces until he could remove the kangoo and the future Khan could make a proper escape. These incidents played a crucial role in shaping Genghis Khan, providing lessons that would resonate with him as he went on to conquer the world. Historians can analyze these moments to gain deeper insights into Temujin the man. Firstly, we witness the inherent ruthlessness of the Khan. His half-brother, having crossed him too many times, paid the ultimate price, a fate that would befall millions more under Genghis Khan's rule. Secondly, we see the hardships imposed on him during his childhood. Despite being the son of a clan leader, a position akin to a prince in Mongol society, he endured the harshest aspects of life, including starvation and enslavement. Despite accumulating unimaginable riches later in life, Genghis Khan was known for not indulging in his own wealth, choosing to instead live a traditional Mongol life till the end. Thirdly, he recognized that family relationships were not the sole ones of significance. His clan had failed his family, as the loss of his father shouldn't have resulted in the exclusion of his children. Simultaneously, his family had failed him. His half-brother asserted dominance, and his mother sided against him in favor of Begtar. Conversely, a lowly, nameless slave had freed him. Despite lacking any family or prior clan relationship, this man risked his life for a stranger, a touching demonstration that relationships extended beyond familiar or clan ties. Genghis Khan distinguished himself from his steppe predecessors in several ways, with one of the most notable being his commitment to meritocracy. In essence, he prioritized promoting individuals based on their deserving qualifications rather than solely due to their family relationships. While his immediate family held a special place in his life and he eventually passed control of his empire to his sons, his armies were led by individuals from different clans. Notably, figures like Jebe the Arrow even arose to leadership after having been adversaries of the Khan. The emphasis shifted from one's lineage to their capabilities. What an individual could achieve became more crucial than their family connections. Years after consolidating his rule over the Mongol tribes, Temujin actively sought and found the man who had freed him from the Kangu, rewarding him with riches as a token of gratitude for the act of kindness. His escape from imprisonment was dramatic, but the real challenge lay in surviving as a fugitive. Signs indicate that Taichud made attempts to recapture him, but fortune smiled upon Temujin when he crossed paths with Boruchu. Boruchu not only became his first follower, but also a lifelong friend. Temujin embarked on the journey to becoming a warlord, carving out a small kingdom for himself and his family. Legends sprouted during this period, including one of Temujin single-handedly defeating six warriors. 
these tales attracted outcasts to his banner, fueling the growth of his power. Gathering enough wealth, he completed the dowry payment for his former fiancé, Borte, who had patiently awaited his return, an indication that Temujin's imprisonment likely lasted for months rather than years. Returning for his bride proved to be one of the best decisions of his life, not only for the joy of their marriage, but also because his father-in-law presented him with a beautiful brownish-black sable coat as a gift. Soon, we'll delve into how this unexpected gift would serve as his path out of an existential crisis. Navigating married life introduced new challenges for the young warlord. On one occasion, the Merkit, still seeking vengeance for Yasugi's taking of Holin, descended upon Temujin's small group with a massive raiding party of 300 men. Their camp was overrun, and in the chaotic escape, Temujin, his four brothers, and his mother managed to flee, inadvertently leaving Borte behind. The secret history doesn't mince words, noting simply that there was no horse for Borte. Besides the immediate concern for his kidnapped wife, the incident posed a direct threat to Temujin's future. In steppe culture, a warlord's reputation was paramount, and stories of him running away while leaving his wife as bait wouldn't bode well for recruitment. Temujin faced two pressing challenges regarding his next move. First, he lacked the manpower to take on the Merkit and avenge the loss of his wife. Second, time was of the essence, as Mongols customarily married and impregnated captive women quickly. Urgently needing allies, Temujin sought out Togril, his father's former Anda of the Karit clan. Presenting the sable coat that he had received from his father-in-law as a gift, Temujin implied a willingness to be adopted by Togril. His tribute was accepted, marking the end of Temujin's family's clanless status. Better yet, Togril pledged to marshal all his resources for the campaign against the offending Merkit. Unbeknownst to Temujin at the time, one of these resources was another emerging warlord, Temujin's childhood blood brother, Jamuka. The conflict ebbed and flowed for months, but ultimately Temujin and Togril emerged victorious. Temujin managed to reclaim both his reputation as well as his wife. The Hollywood-esque version of the rescue, as portrayed in the secret history, depicts a distraught Temujin rushing headlong into the camp, frantically searching every tent for his true love. Amidst the chaos, Borte heard and recognized his voice, seized his horse's reins mid-gallop, and in the midst of the intense battle, the two shared an impassioned embrace. Amid their joyous reunion, a complication surfaced. Borte was pregnant. 
the timeline involving Temujin's departure, travel in search of allies, and time spent convincing those allies to plan a military campaign clarified for all that the child in Borte's womb was not his own. The only indication given that Temujin knew the child was the son of another man was found in the boy's name. The rising warlord had named the child Jochi, which meant guest. Despite the joy of finding his wife alive, Temujin harbored intense rage towards his enemy, demonstrating an unquenchable desire for that revenge, a hallmark of his rule, he purportedly sought out the identities of each of the original 300 raiders, executing them all and taking their wives and concubines into slavery. Seeking to prevent a reoccurrence of the previous year's events, during which his gang was swiftly overwhelmed by an actual clan, Temujin's small band of warriors aligned themselves with Jamuka's camp. The young leaders reaffirmed their Anda status in a public ceremony, proclaiming for all to hear, Let us love one another and make two lives into one, never to forsake one another. They concluded the ceremony in the traditional step manner, sleeping apart from the others beneath a single blanket, reminiscent of true brothers who grew up sharing a single bed cover. For a year and a half, the relationship between the two warriors remained strong, but trouble loomed on the horizon. Temujin hadn't joined the clan in a conventional manner. In modern terms, he had cut the line. Emerging seemingly out of nowhere, he found a place that established himself on the top line sharing power with the traditional chief. While initially content to follow Jamuka's leadership, having two alpha males in one camp inevitably presented a problem. Historian Jack Weatherford explains that under the kinship hierarchy, crucial to the steppe peoples, each lineage was known as a bone. The closest lineages, those with whom no intermarriage was allowed, were known as white bones. More distant kin with whom intermarriage was allowed were the black bone lineages. Weatherford continues, stating that Temujin and Jamuka were distant cousins, but of different bones because they traced their ancestry back to a single woman, albeit two different husbands. Jamuka descended from her first husband, a steppe herder, while Temujin descended from the forest hunter, known in their oral history as Bondachar the Fool. That man had kidnapped the woman after killing her husband. This meant that Temujin was of black bone and considered inferior compared to the ancestry of his blood brother. Over time, this distinction became more emphasized, driving a wedge between the two Andas. The breaking point arrived in 1181, when Jamuka informed his friend that instead of camping with him, Temujin should take the less prestigious sheep and goats and establish another camp by the river. Although it might not seem significant, 
This was a clear insult that Borte was unwilling to tolerate. Stepping to the forefront, she challenged her husband to respond. Failure to do so would have labeled him a coward in the eyes of his beloved. This wasn't a sudden change for her. She had never liked or trusted Jamuka and used this occasion to convince her husband that he was merely a pawn, furthering his friend's ambitions. Keep in mind that Temujin was born clutching a blood clot in his hand, prophesized for greatness. Neither he nor his wife were willing to accept a peaceful life herding goats. That night, Temujin and his loyal followers departed in secret. Our best estimate places Temujin at 19 years old at this crucial moment. Still a teenager, he embarked on his second attempt to establish authority, attempting to forge a clan from what amounted to scraps. Resources, manpower, and most importantly, horses were a zero-sum competition on the steppes. Temujin's next decisions would trigger a civil war with Chimuka, ultimately resulting in the creation of the greatest fighting force in world history, an ever-victorious army that would span from East Asia to Central Europe. The leadership split resulted in a rupture among the region's tribes. Clan loyalties mattered, but the alliance system was ever fluid. Clans would join each other whenever they saw an opportunity to enrich their followers. One faction of tribal elders sought to create a new federation of clans with Jamuka as the designated leader. However, many younger warriors opposed this and looked instead towards Temujin as the future of their peoples. He represented change, a type of character that armchair historian Dan Carlin calls a historical arsonist, someone who wanted to burn down everything to start afresh. Temujin took these young men who desired glory and put them through focused military training, transforming part-time soldiers into elite warriors. Only in his camp were men allowed to directly compete against each other, even to the point of drawing blood. This was a dramatic change and represented something against all superstitions of the Mongols who believed that the enemy's spirit was carried via blood. He instituted other changes as well. Proving that his father's poisoning was always on his mind, he began appointing his most trusted men as cooks, quiver-bearers, and sword-bearers, as well as nominating stewards to be in charge of the clan's supplies and animals. These cushy jobs were typically reserved for the Khan's family members. No longer would you be promoted to the top jobs just because of who you were related to. Anyone entering Temujin's camp knew instinctively who was in charge, as the camp was formed in a concentric circle with the chieftain in the middle. Jamuka, on the other hand, maintained traditions. He refused to promote shepherds that showed merit to serve as his officers because they were deemed infradig, or beneath that status. The two opposing forces clashed frequently over the next decade, 
One of the largest battles occurred in 1186 after Jamuka's brother was killed attempting to steal horses. Credible reports suggest that Temujin's forces were outnumbered 3 to 1 and lost the day. Instead of finishing off his rival, however, Jamuka's men let the Mongols survive for another day and turned to looting before the battle was finished. This was another customary act of the steppe peoples. Raiding was as much an act of trade as it was of violence. Goods from China would slowly trickle northward, exchanged through a market that set prices via the force of arms. The southernmost tribes would raid China, before they in turn were raided by the tribes of the mid-latitudes. Finally, those clans would be attacked by their northern neighbors. For these reasons, the northern tribes were not only the furthest behind on the trends, but were also the most ruggedly violent of the bunch. In the mind of conservative Jamuka, pursuing your enemy presented another chance for your enemy to kill you. It also meant that all of the best loot would already be claimed by the time that you returned. Encirclement theory is among the most accepted of military doctrines. Conflicts in which one fails to surround their enemy and force upon them a last stand are the ones that seem to go on for eternity. The trench warfare of World War I stands out as the greatest example, as both sides in the war sought to surround the other. The result was a line of trenches that went from the North Sea to the Mediterranean. Insurgencies such as the American Revolution nearly always succeed because the longer the war continues, the less willing one side is to pay the cost of victory. General Washington continually slipped away from the grasp of the British, who paid the price for failing to surround the Continental Army and finish off the poisonous thorn in their side. Letting Temujin get away wasn't his worst mistake on the day, however. After the battle was finished, Jamuka reportedly boiled 70 of his former tribesmen alive. Mongol tradition taught that such a death destroyed their souls as well as their bodies. A preferred death, typically reserved for nobles, was a bloodless one. This didn't mean that there wasn't any suffering, just that none of the blood got away. They typically accomplished this by sewing the living noble up tight in a bag before weighing it down and throwing it into a body of water. By boiling the bodies and disintegrating their blood, Jamuka was destroying the essence of their being. In defeat, Temujin fled south, and in search of a safe place to regroup, he willingly became a tool for the Jin Chinese who had long instigated fighting amongst the steppe people in order to keep them weak and fragmented. Eight years pass, and no historian is quite sure why Jamuka wasn't able to establish a dominant tribe while Temujin was licking his wounds during his self-induced exile. One conceivable explanation is posed by the secret history, which claimed that the ritual boiling incident drove so many of Jamuka's followers away that he was unable to capitalize on his victory. 
1196, a golden opportunity presented itself when the Tatars turned against the Jin. Despite the Jin Chinese emerging victorious, they had suffered significant losses, rendering them vulnerable. Temujin seized the moment and spearheaded the conquest of the Tatars, a deeply personal mission as they were the group responsible for his father's murder. His triumph was so complete that Temujin swiftly rose to become one of the wealthiest figures on the steppe. Togril, his adopted father, emerged from hiding to reconcile with the young warlord, and the Chinese bestowed traditional titles on both men. Temujin was appointed a commander, while Togril assumed the title of Ong Khan, or Prince, though some historians refer to him as the Fat Khan. Empowered by his victory, Temujin set his sights on another traditional foe, the Merkit. Subadai, a man destined to become the Khan's greatest general, played a role in this next conquest. Infiltrating the Merkit camp as a spy, to pilfer their war plans before the conflict. After defeating the Merkit, Temujin turned his attention to the Jerkin, and then finally to the Naaman. Following each triumph, Temujin continued to defy tradition in his leadership approach. Rather than tolerating soldiers who disengaged from battle for looting, he implemented swift executions. In a departure from the finders-keepers mentality, Temujin claimed all loot and distributed it based on individual contributions. This led to the grisly practice of collecting ears as proof of battlefield actions. Moreover, he allocated shares of the spoils to the families of fallen men, incentivizing warriors to take risks with the assurance that their kin would be cared for. Unlike prior Khans, who left the families of fallen warriors with nothing, Temujin's approach transformed the dynamics of loyalty. He also began absorbing followers into his tribe, a pragmatic move for an outcast in need of adherence. This absorption of tribes into his burgeoning Mongol nation not only bolstered his ranks, but also provided opportunities for capable individuals who, if they were worthy, were promoted and integrated into the new tribe. While the practice of marrying conquered women continued, it deviated from the traditional method of absorbing individuals as slaves. To symbolize the unity of the merging tribes, Holin, Temujin's mother, adopted an orphaned child of each tribe. With each conquest, the newly assimilated tribe gained a representative who became a literal brother of the Khan. The assimilation of conquered enemies into the Mongol fold became a routine practice under Temujin's rule. But one notable exception persisted. Unwilling to forsake the power of a traditional blood feud and unable to forgive the Tatars for the murder of his father, an empowered Temujin later returned to exact his revenge. He systematically executed every Tatar male capable of producing a child taller than the center spoke of a wagon wheel. Following this brutal act, he took their women as slaves and concubines. The elderly Tatar men were spared, 
with a haunting awareness that they were the last remnants of a once proud tribe, allowed to wander the world as living relics. Temujin decreed that these outcasts were untouchable, ensuring that their every day served as a poignant reminder of their tribe's gradual march towards extinction. Around 1200, it became evident that Temujin was eyeing supreme power on the steppe, prompting traditional military counterbalancing. The remaining clans rallied behind Jamuka, whose conservative viewpoints aligned with theirs, proclaiming him Gur Khan, or Supreme Ruler. This assembly included representatives from 15 tribes, but more significantly, it harbored several of Temujin's spies. The ensuing clash of empires unfolded in the Battle of Khoiten. Jamuka, believing in the element of surprise, enlisted sorcerers. As the Mongols held a belief in mystic arts, these men were hired to conjure a storm. Professor Weatherford notes the steppe people were reluctant to engage in direct combat. Raiding was part of their way of life, intended to secure access to goods. Step warriors employed various tactics, such as hiring shamans to intimidate the enemy before a battle, hoping to induce panic and a swift retreat, leaving behind possessions. Temujin too employed shamans, who forecasted victory based on the cracks in burnt sheep shoulder bones. These shamans, positioned high above the battlefield, pounded drums and manipulated magical rocks, claiming the ability to control the weather and summon supporting spirits during the battle. As is often the case, science can step in to explain what happened next. A bizarre stone soaked in water was believed worldwide during this time to cause storms, remove poison, and of course, ward off dragons. At Koiten, a storm was apparently magically conjured, but it blew in the wrong direction, causing chaos among Jamuka's forces. Additionally, Temujin, aware of all of the plans thanks to his network of spies, had laid traps for his enemy. It was a rout, but Temujin was shot with an arrow in the neck. As was common on the steppe, this arrow was coated in viper's blood. At this point, it is pertinent to introduce Jelme to our story. Jelme was the older brother of Subadai and was one of Temujin's earliest generals. Ignoring traditional beliefs regarding blood, Jelme sucked the poison from the Khan's neck, spitting it out besides his unconscious leader. He reportedly stayed by his bedside for days, and upon waking, Temujin asked for milk, but the camp had none. As an outward sign of his devotion, Jelme, the general of the army, personally snuck into a nearby enemy camp to steal a horn of milk for his ailing lord. Instead of being honored for risking his life, Temujin was dismayed by the actions of his general, initially believing that he had betrayed them and switched sides. 
Upon his return, Temujin became more interested in the man that had managed to shoot the arrow rather than the man that had chosen to save him. The Mongols found the archer and brought him before the Khan. When asked about what had happened, the warrior claimed that he had nothing personal against the Khan, but that he was honor-bound to obey his commander. He added that if his life were spared, he would become the Khan's greatest warrior. Valuing loyalty above all else, Temujin understood the warrior's actions, accepted his oath, and granted him a new name, Jebe, which meant the arrow. The War of the Andas continued for a few more years, and Temujin's success further cemented his alliance with Togril. However, tradition is hard to break. Testing the boundaries of the relationship, he asked for Ong Khan's daughter to marry his son, Jochi. Togril literally laughed off the proposal, suggesting that it was beneath Temujin's station in life. The event signified a public break between the two men. Immediately sensing that he had made a mistake, the fat Khan backtracked and agreed to a marriage joining their families. But all of this was subterfuge. Ong Khan had come to the realization that Temujin would never be satisfied, and he aligned himself one last time with Jamuka. The hastily arranged wedding feast was a trap that Temujin was fortunate to avoid. On the way to the ceremony, Temujin stopped and shared a campfire with two herdsmen on the road. They revealed the rumor of Togril's treachery. Wanting to witness the betrayal with his own eyes, Temujin arrived and inspected from a distance. Upon realizing that the herdsmen were correct, his men immediately separated, each running in different directions to throw off any pursuit. They met up at the shores of Lake Baljuna and ate a meal together, forming what became known as the Baljuna Covenant. Nineteen men from nine different tribes were represented at this meal. Among them were several Christians, Buddhists, as well as three Muslims. Melting pots are closely associated with civilizations. In the 21st century, multiracial representative democracies have proliferated across the planet. Today, small nomadic groups are incorrectly assumed to be the opposite, remnants of a time when tribes were of one ethnicity. The Baljuna Covenant is one of the first great moments in a world that values multicultural interactions. The one thing they had in common was an unwavering belief in Temujin. They all swore loyalty to him, their oaths transcending kinship, ethnicity, and religion. They then separated, dispatching word to all of his followers across the steppe to swiftly approach Ong Khan's camp from every direction. A series of battles commenced over the next three days, and in each one, Temujin had the smaller forces but he ultimately prevailed. This contradicts Napoleon's musings that God is always on the side of the larger battalions. Temujin was able to outthink his enemies. He also had some of the greatest military minds at his disposal. In fact, McLinn believes that no fewer than three of his commanders were authentic 
military geniuses. The wedding ruse proved to be an unmitigated disaster for Ong Khan. Jumuka suffered a complete defeat and was deserted by his men. After a year of evading capture, Temujin finally caught up with his former Anda. Recognizing that escape was futile, the men guarding their lord prioritized their own interests. Jamuka's last five remaining men chose to betray him in hopes of claiming the bounty on his head. This decision was invariably a mistake, as Temujin never rewarded disloyalty. He firmly believed that a man willing to betray one lord would inevitably do so again. Temujin thought differently about individuals like Jebe the Arrow, who joined only after the fighting concluded. Jebe had fought for his lord until the man's death. Switching sides before the fighting concluded would have meant losing both his honor and his head. Jamuka's five betrayers faced execution upon their arrival at Temujin's camp. The Secret History presents an optimistic account of the aftermath. According to this Mongol-produced document, Temujin extended complete forgiveness to his Anda for everything that had transpired over the last decade. The document even endeavors to depict Jamuka as a double agent of the Khan, suggesting that he was always serving the interests of the Mongols. Supposedly, Jamuka requested to be killed, asserting that it was for the greater good and prosperity of the Mongols. The document portrays Temujin as a compassionate protagonist, responding to his rival, Let us be companions. Now that we are joined together once again, we should remind each other of things we have forgotten. Wake each other up from our sleep. Even when you went away and were apart from me, you were still my lucky, blessed, sworn brother. Surely in the days of killing and being killed, the pit of your stomach and your heart pained for me. Surely in the days of slain and being slain, your breast and your heart pained for me. The historical record, however, makes it clear that Temujin no longer had a soft spot for the man to whom he had once pledged eternal loyalty to. Even Professor Weatherford, who possesses a clear revisionist view of these events, is skeptical of the flowery prose contained in the secret history, which claims that Jamuka offered himself up to death by stating, Now when the world is ready for you, what use is there in my becoming a companion to you? On the contrary, sworn brother, in the black night I would haunt your dreams. In the bright day I would trouble your heart. I would be the louse in your collar. I would become the splinter in your door panel. Despite all of this flowery prose, Jamuka suffered in the end. Instead of giving him a traditional, honorable, bloodless death, Temujin handed him over to his nephew, who led him out of Temujin's sight and hacked the man to pieces. His body and soul were mutilated upon the orders of the black-boned goat herder that he had once shared a blanket with beneath the stars. Much like when Brutus was finally killed by Julius Caesar, the world changed with the death of Jamuka. The historical arsonist had emerged victorious, 
fires had been set that would alter the course of history. The old ways were dismantled and no one would rise again to defend them. Temujin now controlled a landmass roughly the size of Western Europe, with a population of a million people under his sway. He would soon prove that it wasn't just civilizations that knew how to conquer. One year later, Temujin presided over a Kuratai, or meeting of all tribal nobles. There, they conferred upon him the title of Genghis Khan, ruler of the new united Mongol nation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.